Greetings in Christ's name to each of you today. It's a joy to be in the house of the Lord again and to study God's Word together. Truly, it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can effectively teach and preach the Word of God. Um, many times I, I just sense a great need for the power of God and for the Holy Spirit to give me direction. You know, time moves along and I've been preaching the word for some years now, but that hasn't necessarily made it easier to do by any stretch. God's word is still, yes, it's powerful, but it, it takes a lot of work to dig in and to to try to make practical application for us today. And it's worth that. It's truly worth that. I'm not making any excuse. But I do request your, your prayers on my behalf, and for Brother Dan, and for Brother David, and for Dad as well. As we stand before you from week to week and proclaim the Word of God, that, that God could direct us by His Holy Spirit to help us say, what we should say, and not just simply what we want to say. You can turn to James once again. We have now made it to chapter 5, and I, I did tell you, I think, at the beginning of this book study that we're going to start easing our way <laughs> through the book of James, and, and we are. We're, we are easing our way through it. We are now to the last chapter, and there's, there's several sermons yet to come, I suppose, if the Lord wills. But we would like to look at the first six verses this morning. We will look at, at James 5, 1 through 6, for the first few minutes, and then we will also turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and look at some verses there. I've titled this message, The Ways and the Woes of the Worldly Wealthy. The Ways and the Woes of the Worldly Wealthy. If you were to walk around your neighborhood, your community, your town, and ask different people the question, would you like to be rich? I suppose you would get very few responses like this. No, nah, no, it, it doesn't interest me. It, it doesn't interest me. I'm, I'm okay. No, I don't think you'd get many responses like that. I heard of a man who said this. He said, they say that it's better to be poor and happy than to be rich and miserable. But couldn't something be worked out that you could be just moderately rich and just a little moody? <laughs> you know, that's often our, our tendency, isn't it? Yeah, we know what the Bible says about prosperity and wealth and riches, and it doesn't have much good to say, for sure. It, it definitely views it in a negative light as a whole. And, and we know that. However, we are still prone to think that, 
that money would solve a lot of our problems. And, and that if we would have a little bit more, we could probably get along a little better. And I suppose there would be some truth to that at times. Yes, I believe a little bit more at times could solve some of our problems. But we do need to keep in focus that more money isn't necessarily a good thing. And the Bible makes it clear, and I think history would make it clear, just even secular history would make it clear that more money brings about more trouble, more problems. And, and we will notice that in, in our study here this morning. Now, we'll read our text in just a moment here, but make a few comments first. Here, as we move into chapter 5, the Apostle James takes on the role, perhaps, of an, one of those Old Testament prophets. At least, that's what he's sounding like, where he's really... He's really coming down strong and hard against those, uh, those ungodly rich people. And the context here is, is that they are oppressing those around them. They are oppressing the poor people. And he doesn't necessarily call them to repentance. At least we don't see that in those words. But he makes it very clear that there is a judgment coming those who are a part of, of that type of world's, uh, world view, mindset, there is a judgment coming. However, by making that clear, I guess in a sense, that should call people to repentance. There is a judgment day coming, and that should cause people to think. And so, as I see it here, James has, has turned a little bit from speaking to the brethren... And, and he, is, he is now speaking directly to the ungodly rich. And we might say, well, so I guess this isn't really for me, is it? <laughs> Maybe I can just sort of uh, close my ears and take a little rest here this morning and, and we'll wait for the next message, right? Well, no, not at all. Because although James may be speaking directly uh, to the ungodly rich and really uh, telling them about the judgment that is to come because of their ungodly practices, we must not fool ourselves. Uh, the truth is, we as believers have the very same tendencies. We are prone to think the same way. We are prone to use our money, use our wealth in similar ways. We are prone to be selfish and proud and materialistic and extravagant. You know, the very nature of man does not lead to satisfaction. The very nature of man does not lead to contentment. No. And unless we are daily surrendered to the Word of God, unless we are daily surrendered to the Spirit of God, our tendency is, is to want more and more, and to want something that is bigger and better, and something that is easier and more convenient. That's our bent. We are prone to go that direction. And so, yes, it's very possible for us as believers 
to be very guilty of the same things that James is speaking here to as he speaks to the ungodly wealthy. And so this morning, their rebuke should serve as our warning as we look at it. Now, let's look at this text here. Follow along as I read James 5, 1 through 6. Go to now, or listen up, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Perhaps sort of a, an odd place to stop. However, that's as far as we'll go for this morning in this passage. You've heard the phrase before, money talks. Money talks. In my studies, I read that in 1931, James Adams coined that phrase in a speech that he delivered. And in that speech, he encouraged everyone to join with him in the American dream. Join with him in that pursuit of the American dream. And then he used that phrase different times in the speech that money talks. And he said that the American dream is really about, uh, it's, the, it's the pursuit of gaining status and personal recognition. As I thought about that, I had to think that, you know, Mr. Adams probably didn't know that the Apostle James had, in a sense, coined that phrase many years prior. When he says in verse 3, Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. Or, the worthlessness of your money, your rusted out (laughs) worthless money, will testify against you. And so yes, money talks. And and people listen. But James says that for the ungodly people who use it selfishly, one day money will talk against them. Money will testify against them, not for them. And we'll note some examples of that here in a few minutes. But in these six verses, let's note four sins of materialism that are in this passage. And so I'm referring to these four sins of materialism as the ways of the worldly wealthy. The ways of the worldly wealthy. And the first we note is hoarding. In verses 2 and 3, we note this. The last part of verse 3, James writes, Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. 
Now, I understand that back in those days, if you had grain, if you had a number of changes of garments, if you had gold, or which could be lots of money, if you had grain, garments, and gold, you were wealthy. That was a status symbol. You were considered wealthy if you had those things, and more than just one of those things, but if you had much of those things. But look what, look what James says. He says, look, those of you who have these things, your grain that you have heaped up, that you have hoarded, is rotten. Your garments, all those garments in your walk-in closet or whatever you might have, they're moth-eaten. They're ruined. And your gold is rusted. If it's possible for gold to rust. But you get the picture. The things that you have, you are not using. But instead, you are heaping them up. You are hoarding them. Now notice, he doesn't say that that you have saved these things. But he says that you have hoarded them. And and as I look at it, there's a different sense there. In general, when we talk about saving something, it it has to do with good planning, thinking ahead for times to come. It, It has to do with money that will be used or things that will be used. There is that intent. Whereas as I as I look at hoarding, it speaks of selfish accumulation. It speaks of undisciplined spending. It speaks of of collecting, simply collecting things with really no intent to use them, at least to their full. No, it has a selfish picture to it very much. And so as, as we consider this thing of hoarding, it certainly isn't something that was just a problem in James's day with a few of the rich people. No, but this thing of hoarding is something that no doubt is a big deal in our day, in our culture. You know, in our day, wealth equals worth to a lot of people. Wealth equals worth. And, and their, their mentality is, is that The less I have, the less I am. And the more I have, the more I am. And so, of course, get more because that makes you more, right? You're more valuable. You're worth more. You're noticed more. You're recognized more. And so, by all means, get more. (laughs) And so, then we've got to have places to put them. You have to have places to put this more. And so, uh, you know, the guys that are into the storage shed business are doing well these days, aren't they, Darren? But, you know, there's storage sheds and there's many storage units and there's garages, which I've noticed in walking in different neighbors' garages these days, you don't necessarily have room to keep your cars in the garages. But, but the garages are used for storage. And then they put a, something else for the car outside. And, and there's basements. Let's see, is dad here? No. And there's attics and, and all kinds of, of places where 
where things are accumulated and stored up. And in, in a lot of these situations, they haven't been used for years and years. And in, in the meantime, they, a lot of them go bad. They're, they're not of much value years down the road. Hoarding, hoarding. James speaks about hoarding here. And it's something that we need to ponder for ourselves as believers. What are we doing with the things that we have? And what is our motive for getting the things we get? Truly, wealth does not equal worth. No, it doesn't. That's a lie of the devil. That's deception. Well, we note then another sin of materialism that James notes here. And that is in verse 4. And that is cheating. Or we could say defrauding. Defrauding. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And so the picture is here of work that is done. The job has been accomplished. The yard has been mowed. The house has been painted. The cake, the wedding cake has been baked and delivered to the wedding. The job is complete. And yet there's no payment. And, it's, and, and the wording here, the way, it, the way it comes across is that it's not that it's just late. It's not that the payment is just simply late, but the payment is not coming. The payment is not intended to come. You see, he says here, it's kept back by fraud. There's a lack of honesty in this whole deal. It appears like the wealthy, the ungodly wealthy in this scenario here, has, has slyly figured out some legitimate reason not to pay. Perhaps he decided that, well, it wasn't done quite like I wanted it done. Or that cake just didn't taste quite right. Or so on and so forth. But, but he has slyly figured out some legitimate reason why he should not have to pay. And so, when contacted, he may say, oh, the check is in the mail. <laughs> when in fact, that laborer will never see that check. It never shows up. Cheating. Defrauding. Once again, speaking of, of oppressing the poor. Wealthy, ungodly, wealthy people who are taking advantage of the situation. James mentions another sin of materialism. We see that in verse 5. And that is indulging in luxury while disregarding the needy. Indulging in luxury while disregarding the needy. You know, that can, that can come pretty close home. <laughs> That's not just the ungodly wealthy, is it, that, that can be prone to do that. We all live quite well, do we not? 
We have nice places to live. We have many nice things. How are we doing in this category? And I can't remember all the details here. I, in my reading, um, I read about a country or a place uh, that has a certain wall that is the dividing wall. On one side of the wall is extreme extravagance and luxury. I mean full-blown. And on the other side of that wall is destitute, is the slums, is extreme poverty. Just that wall that separates. And so you have these two worlds that are, are going on at the same time just this far apart in a sense. Some living in self-indulgence, living in luxury without ever considering the enormous needs that close by. I say we can fall into that same category at times as well. And then there's another sin of materialism that James mentions here, and that is in verse 6. And that is hurting innocent people for personal gain. Hurting innocent people for personal gain. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Or you have hurt those who were not even opposing you. <laughs> they were not even in your way. They were not standing against you. And you have hurt them. Now he, he says here, killed or murdered. And I don't know exactly what he was referring to exactly there. Perhaps he was not speaking of literally killing them or of literally you know, taking their life. But perhaps he was speaking of, of taking advantage of, of poor people to the point of them losing their livelihood, losing their life, as it were. Perhaps he was speaking of the judicial system. Take, for example, uh, this, this poor man who mowed the rich man's yard never got his pay. So perhaps he said, well... This would be my opportunity to get a little something from the rich man, right? And so he takes it to court. I was not paid for the work that I've been doing. Well, but see, the court system is corrupt. And the rich and wealthy people make friends of the lawyers and the judge because it is to their advantage. You could say it's rigged. And so in the end, the poor man may end up losing his pickup truck and his house, and his whatever else. And so now he's worse off than he was before. You see what I'm saying? Just one scenario of how the worldly wealth, the ungodly wealthy people can, can hurt people and can abuse and use people for personal gain, taking advantage of them. I had to think of, of the story in 2 Samuel Chapter 12, the story where the prophet Nathan came to David after David had committed that sin with Bathsheba. And the prophet Nathan told him this story. 
He said there were two men in this town. One was extremely rich and one was very, very poor. And, and the rich man had everything he needed. He had lots of sheep and lots of cattle and everything. And the poor man just had one little ewe lamb. That's all he had. And he goes on to say that that poor little, that poor man, that ewe lamb to him was, was his life. Basically, it was just like a daughter to him. He had raised it and, and, and he, he fed that thing. And it was just, it was family. It was family because that's what he had. That was his joy and pride, you could say. But one day, the old rich man had some, had some friends coming into town, had some company. And so what did he do? Instead of taking a, an animal from his abundance to dress, to eat, he robbed that poor man's little ewe lamb, all he had, and he killed it and dressed it, and that's what he fed his company. You see, it's that picture. And you know the rest of the story where God was using that story to bring about conviction in David's heart, actually he condemned himself through that story because David said, oh, that's terrible. That man should be killed. He should repay four times over for that atrocity. And then Nathan said, well, you're the man. You're the man. Anyway, I thought of that story as I pondered this thing of the ungodly wealthy people using, well, they're hurting people killing people, taking away their livelihood, taking advantage of them for personal gain. Let's turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Those are some ways of the wealthy. Let me say ways of the worldly wealthy. <laughs> because we'll find out here that we are also very wealthy, and I trust those are not our ways. However, we must keep in mind that we are not immune from those tendencies. But turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I would now like for us to think for a few moments about the woes of the worldly wealthy. The woes of the worldly wealthy. We're going to look at two verses right now, and then we're going to come back in just a few minutes and, and read some more of these verses. But verses 9 and 10. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Okay, let's note here what the Apostle Paul writes in verse 9. He is speaking to... Those that will be rich or those who have a will to be rich. It's not just saying that one day they will be rich. No, no, it's, it's talking about they are committed to getting rich. They long to be rich. They are sold out to this pursuit. You know, it's, it's their number one drive. It's all about getting to the top of the corporate ladder or whatever. That's their longing. And they are giving it all they got. As I was studying this, I came across 
an excerpt uh, from an article in Forbes magazine. Now, I, I don't subscribe to Forbes magazine, and I don't intend to, and I don't encourage you to either. However, Forbes magazine would give some very good illustration material for sermons. And this is one. And, and this is an excerpt from an article uh, from back in the year 2010, a few years ago. But, but the heading over this article was, So You Want to Be a Billionaire. A billionaire, okay. That was the heading over this article. And, and I'm, I'm giving this little illustration as a means of, of illustrating the mentality and, and the lifestyle and the drive of those who will to be rich. They've committed themselves to that. I quote, Becoming super rich requires intense dedication to the money rules. These rules of conduct are based primarily on in-depth research with the super rich, especially billionaires and people striving for billionaire status. The money rules are the mindsets and behaviors more regularly applied by the super rich that have enabled them to achieve such extreme financial success. Then again, these same rules of conduct can be used by almost anyone to significantly enhance his or her net worth. In other words, he's saying here that, that the money rules need to become your way of life. In order for them to really work, they need to become your way of life. And then, and then he lists some rules. And we'll just, I'll just note two of them. But rule number one is commit to extreme wealth. Have a will to be rich. <laughs> That's what the Apostle Paul said. Commit to extreme wealth. And they explain it this way. They say the super rich have a clear sense that money is the critical objective. They prioritize and, con- and concentrate on those activities with the highest potential return and assign a lower priority to almost everything else. So in other words, he's saying that whatever doesn't make money isn't worth your time. And even if it makes money, if it doesn't make as much money as this, it's a waste of time. It's all about making money. Rule number two, engage in enlightened self-interest. I couldn't figure that. It seems like an oxymoron. Engage in enlightened self-interest. But they explain it this way. The super rich never waver or allow themselves to be derailed by the chance for group happiness or request for fairness. They regularly do the advance work necessary to create an advantage or exploit the weakness in an opponent. I was just astounded by some of this, by by all of it. And this is the world that we live in. This is the world that we live in. But, but I had to think, if that doesn't sound like James chapter 5, I, I don't know what does. But as we look at this, as we consider the woes of the worldly wealthy, let us not forget that deception is all through this. Deception is all through this prosperity package. And, and the selfish pursuit of prosperity never truly, truly delivers what it promises. It never does. We could call it false advertising. You know, just like those pictures on the billboards, uh, 
the people who indulge in those glamorized sins never truly come away smiling and happy and beautiful. No, they truly never come away that way. But instead, those people are riddled with guilt and hopelessness. They are never satisfied as it looks in the picture. The same is true here with financial things. But look at what Paul says is the real picture. Okay, So, so there is deception wrapped up in, in this thing of worldly wealth. But look at what Paul says is the real picture. And this should cause us to, uh, to take a deep breath and, and think. He says, They that will be rich fall into temptation. Okay, so temptations are a part of this. He also says that they fall into a snare, traps. Who wants to fall into traps? He also says that these kind of people, they end up in ruin and destruction. And and he says that they have many sorrows. Why? Why would we want to be a part of that? And yet, as I said, deception is all through this whole thing. Here's an illustration from some years ago. And even even though it's from about 100 years ago, it still is modern enough to work. (laughs) In 1923, at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, Illinois, eight of the most powerful money men in the world gathered for a meeting. These eight, if they combined their resources and their assets, controlled more money than the U.S. Treasury. In that group were such men as Charles Schwab. He was the president of a steel company. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. And Arthur Cutton was a a wheat speculator. Albert Fall was a presidential cabinet member who personally was a very wealthy man. Jesse Livermore was the greatest trader on Wall Street in his generation. Leon Frazier was the president of the International Bank of Settlements. Ivan Kruger headed the largest monopoly. Quite an impressive group of people. Let's look at the same group later in life. Charles Schwab lived on borrowed money for the last five, five years of his life and died penniless. Richard Whitney was caught cheating and spent the rest of his life serving a sentence in prison. Arthur Cutton, the, that great wheat speculator, became insolvent. Or in other words, he was never able to pay off all his debt. Now how rich is that? Albert Fall was pardoned from a federal prison so he might die at home. Leon Fraser, Jesse Livermore, Ivan Kruger, they all committed suicide. And then he says here, the the writer, seven of those eight great big money men had lives that were disasters before they left planet Earth. The woes of the worldly wealthy. You see, if they would have known that, 
If they would have known how it ends up, do you think that would have changed how they thought about it? I would hope so. It's hard to say. But it's not all that it's made out to be. Now, let's note some do's and don'ts for rich people as we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Some do's and some don'ts for rich people. By the way, who is rich? Are you rich? <laughs> See, most people don't think they're rich. You know, at, at, first, at, at first thought, I would probably say, no, I'm not rich. But are you rich? And we could go for a while and give various illustrations uh, to, to persuade you that, yes, indeed, you are very rich. You are very wealthy as you compare yourself to the world around. And it's not good to compare, but yet it can be healthy at times. And I think this is a, a time when we would say that, yes, truly we are, we are wealthy. For sake of time, I, I, won't, I won't go into one of these illustrations, but you can probably find the book back here on our, on our shelf on this little book rack. If not there, it may be downstairs in the library. But, but Gary Miller has, has wrote some powerful things about wealth and, and how it looks the world around. The one book, that just a small book, Life in a Global Village, uh, that I read that really helped me see this from a different perspective uh, is, is one that you should read, and you could read it very quickly, and he has plenty of pictures with it, so that helps too, you know. But that gives a different perspective of what, is, of what truly is wealth and who is wealthy. And by the time you're done reading that short little read, you would know without a shadow of a doubt that you are within the top 1% of the richest people in this whole world. Pretty much everyone sitting here would be in that category. The top 1% in the whole world. And so, now that we've realized that <laughs> the rich people in this world are us, I would like to make some application to us from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's start at verse 3. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and, str and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself." But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown man in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Go down to verse 17. 
Charge them that are rich in this world, that's you and me in this present world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Okay, let's quickly note some do's and don'ts for rich people. First of all, a couple don'ts. First is, don't be arrogant, verse 17. Don't be high-minded. Realize that what you have received is truly because of the goodness of God. It's from the bountiful hand of God. It's not really because of you. Oh, but you might say, well, I I worked for this. I did all this. Yes, you may have. But God gave you the health and the strength and the ability and the wisdom. God is behind it all. And so, don't be arrogant. Think of King Uzziah, who was very wealthy. And it went to his head. And he had a terrible end of his life. King Nebuchadnezzar, who also at a similar situation. And there's many illustrations in Scripture. Even the children of Israel, when God warned them, you've come out of Egypt, you've been uh, through the wilderness, and now as you go into the promised land, be careful that you don't say, boy, look at what we have, and you say, look at what we've done, and your heart be turned away from God. So don't be arrogant about what you have. The second don't that I see here is also in verse 17. That's don't put your trust in wealth. Don't trust in uncertain riches. Riches are uncertain. Wealth is uncertain. It's not a given. Uh, The Proverbs writer says, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. You know, it looks so promising one moment and then boom. Boom. It's gone the next. Riches are uncertain, but I also note the contrast here in what the Apostle Paul is writing. He says, don't trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God, implying that riches offer no future, really. Riches are dead. Riches have no eternal value. Don't trust in that but instead trust in the living God. Okay, now some do's. Some do's that we find in this passage, going up to verses 6 through 8. Be content with what you have. Or less. (laughs) Learn to be content with less. Paul says here that there are many who believe that gain is godliness. But he says, wait a minute. It's really the other way around. Godliness is gain. But, but more than that, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And Paul said that I have learned in whatever state that I am therewith to be content. Now, Paul lived in many different states, didn't he? <laughs> many different situations. Some good and some bad, you could say. And yet, what was the one common denominator through all of that? 
Because there was a lot of things that were changing, but one didn't, and that was God. God was with him through all of that. And Paul said, I've learned to be content. And so, and so the key to that contentment was not in the things. It was not in the stuff, because that was always changing. That was not certain. The key to his contentment was God himself. He said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And that's a truly powerful example for us. Another do here that we find in verse 11 is flee and follow. But thou, O man of God, or but thou, O woman of God, young person of God, flee these things. I just say here, remember who you are. Remember who you have committed yourself to. Remember what your commitments are. And Paul says here, you're a man of God. You're a person of God. You are not of the world. Therefore, you should have a different train of thought, a different perspective, a different drive, different goals, because you're a person of God. Follow after righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. In other words, flee those selfish pursuits of worldly wealth and follow hard after godly gain. And then in verse 12, another do is to fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. The Christian life is a life of trust in God. And really, this, this whole thing comes down to, who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? What are you glorying in? Is it your stuff? Or is it God? Is it your, your relationship with Him? Is it who He is? Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight. Fight the good fight of faith. It's not about what we see. No, there's something even greater than that that is unseen. And that is the spiritual part of life. We walk by faith and not by sight. Another do in verse 12 is lay hold on eternal life. We're talking about do's for rich people. And it implies that you need to let go of this, let go and take hold of this. Lay hold on eternal life. Make that your number one focus, your number one goal. Let go of these other things. Let go of the pursuit of money and wealth and status, all that, and take hold on eternal life. It has, it has the picture of aggressive action, something that you must do, something that will not just automatically happen, but it takes desire and purpose and intent to grasp. Take it. Take hold of that. Have a will, you could say. Not a will to become rich, but a will to possess eternal life. Verse 17, another do is trust in the living God. Trust in the living God. <laughs> Once again, no, not in, not in wealth, not in stuff that is dead and truly has no future, has no eternal value, but trust in the living God. 
the, the great creator, the sovereign one, the mighty one, the one who, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Trust in him, the living God. And then the last four do's are all from verse 18. And they all have to do with getting your mind off of yourself and onto others around you. Get your mind off of yourself and onto others. Do good. Be rich in good works or in good deeds. Be generous and be willing to share. They come straight out of verse 18 there. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and be willing to share. I'm reminded of of, of this attitude different times there at the bake shop. There's two men over the years that have given hundreds of dollars out of their pocket to bless others through the bake shop. They've come to me and, and they say, Josh, I have been blessed. Both of them have said the same thing in different words, but I have been blessed so much. And and the one Jimmy came to me just on Friday once again. He said, Josh, I I have been blessed abundantly. I don't know why God has blessed me like this, but I want to give. And he handed me a $100 bill. And he said, you use this for needs. Customers that you see may have a need, someone you want to bless their day, you use this. And and for years we've had a a little fund flowing out of these two men that have both given hundreds and hundreds of dollars out of their kindness, out of their generous heart, just to bless other people. That has spoken to me. And, and Jimmy told me on Friday, he, he said, Josh, he said, I have learned that the most enjoyment you'll ever get from your money is when you give it away. <laughs> he handed me a $100 bill. He said, I should have given you some earlier. You probably needed more, didn't you? I said, no, we're fine. What what an example. What an example of doing good, of being generous, of sharing with others. And then let's just note yet the outcome that we find in verse 19. And I want to read this in the NIV. After we see all the do's, For rich people, coming right out of verse 18, we read, In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I like that. (laughs) This is how you lay up treasure in heaven. A few weeks ago us men discussed in Sunday school, how do you lay up treasure in heaven? What does that mean? Here's the answer right here in 1 Timothy 6. There's many things that Paul says we should do, and then he ends it by saying, this is how you lay up treasure in heaven. And this is how you lay hold on that life that is really life. You know, some people talk in our world today about what they're trying to do and what all they have and all their stuff and the money they're making. They say, boy, this is the life. This is the life. Paul says, no way. This is the life. (laughs) You don't gain life by hoarding, by keeping, by being selfish. You gain life by giving in blessing. It's sacrifice. That they may lay hold on the life that is truly life. 
Let's close with two verses from Jeremiah chapter 9. Why don't you turn there? Jeremiah chapter 9. You know, I ask you this morning, in what is your trust? In what is your trust today? What is truly driving you? What puts a smile on your face? What are you glorying in? How does your family know that you are happy? When do you look happy? (laughs) When do you look the happiest? When you have just struck a great deal at work and come away with a nice chunk of money? Or is daddy or mommy the happiest when they've been truly seeking after God and that shows in their lifestyle? Something to consider. What do you glory in? Is it worldly wealth or is it godly gain? Verses 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord which exercised loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Yes, there is room to brag, the prophet says. There is something to glory in, but it's not how strong you are. It's not how smart you are, and it's not how rich you are. But if you want to glory in something, he says... Glory in your loving Heavenly Father and the fact that we are blessed to have a personal relationship with Him. That's worth glorying in. I trust we can consider that and it can help us have a renewed perspective of where our trust is this morning. We'll call for a song.